Our Father, we're thankful to you for this day in which we specially honor mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, those that you have given the responsibility to nurture, to raise up young people. All of us, Lord, have had mothers, and mothers have been of different qualities. We're grateful, Lord, for the godly mothers in our midst here this morning and for what you have done to uh, provide within the church those that are committed to the teachings of Christ and thus to give to their children the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We're thankful, Lord, for the story that we are studying concerning the life of Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives, these who would provide a new beginning. And we're grateful, Father, for the information that we have and for the understanding that you give. Bless us now as we study these matters this morning. And Father, I pray a special blessing on each of our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading with chapter 8 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to the ark for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him towards the evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, and she did not return again to him. Last week, we ended with the first few verses of chapter 8. And we noted that after the water had risen and achieved its maximum height, it had been at that maximum height for approximately 150 days. And then it talks about the water beginning to recede at that point. And last time I mentioned to you that the scripture specifically says that there was a great wind which was set up and that that wind certainly helped with the abatement of the flood, but again, the wind could not be the major factor because as we've already noted, the atmosphere today can only hold probably up to what would be equivalent to two inches of precipitation worldwide if it were all to be precipitated out of the heavens at one time. So that was not the maximum factor or the major factor in the decrease of the water level. But we noted, as we read in Psalm 104, that it had to be the result of major diastrophism. 
That is the downsinking of ocean basins and the rising of the continental masses. And of course, geologists talk about this all the time. They simply spread it out over five billion years rather than seeing it as a short-term affair. Certainly the ocean basin sank relative to the continental masses, and as it did so, the waters ran off the land into the ocean basins as we find them today. And certainly such a runoff could have great, created the great undersea uh, canyons that we see off the mouth of many of the great rivers, which are hardly explainable in modern terms of geology. And even features such as the Grand Canyon, many argued the Grand Canyon couldn't have been carved the way it's seen today, even if it had been under operation for a hundred million years or more of River Colorado flowing. It couldn't possibly have created such a canyon even in such a length of time. And you think about the fact that the depths of the Grand Canyon have been carved in what are known as the Vishnu schists. Now schist is a very, very hard form of rock. It's a metamorphic rock. If you've ever been down in the Grand Canyon, you note that at the base, when you get down in there, it's a, it, the dark color, you, f you sense it because it radiates the heat. Uh, we were down there at one time, and uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, it was already 95 degrees in the bottom of the, of the canyon. Uh, that, that dark rock picks up the heat and radiates it out uh, intensely. But uh, certainly a rapid runoff through unconsolidated layers could have easily carved such a canyon, and that is the argument of, of many. At the end of class, and I felt a little bit rushed last time, so I want to say a little bit more about this. Scripture tells us that the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, and we noted that Ararat traditionally has been the part of the world that we know today as Armenia. Armenia is found in eastern Turkey, northern Iran, in the southern part of what used to be the Soviet Union. It's in the news a lot, as you know, with the fighting that's going on over there between the Armenians and the Azerbaijani. But uh, that particular area has been looked back to by the people who live that part of the world as sort of a heartland. Ararat. Where does the term Ararat come from? Well, we don't really know, but the ancient writers refer to the people who lived in there as the Uratu. Now, it could be that the name Ararat comes from the name of the people, the Uratu, or that the Uratu are named because this was called the land of Ararat. There's no way of really knowing. We read two passages of Scripture last time that indicate that the uh, land was known at later times in history and at the time that Sennacherib was murdered by two of his sons, the regicides, those that killed their father, fled to the north, and it says they fled into the land of Ararat. And there's significant information to indicate that there was intercourse between the peoples who lived up in that area and in Mesopotamia. In fact, Mesopotamia was subject to the infusion of peoples from the surrounding mountains, it seems, throughout history. Also later, the next century, the land of Ararat is mentioned as a land from which came those forces which aided in the conquest of Neo-Babylonia. When the great uh, country of Neo-Babylonia fell, the land which Nebuchadnezzar had made so great, that people from the land of Ararat were participants in the conquest of that particular region of the world. So Ararat was known at a later time. The mountain of Ararat, why should it be thought that the ark landed actually on the mountain itself? Is there any biblical indication of that? Well, not directly, but only by inference. As I noted last time, the scripture says that the 
that the ark grounded on the mountains of Ararat, then it tells us that two and a half months later, the tops of the mountains began to appear. Well, obviously, if the ark grounded on a mountain and from that vantage point you didn't see other mountain tops for another two and a half months of water recession, you must have landed on the highest mountain in the area, right? And of course, Mount Ararat, is, at least today, is the highest mountain in the area. 16,950 feet above sea level, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's not perfectly symmetrical, but it's, it's a very attractive volcanic cone. It's thought to be extinct today, but you know how extinct volcanoes go. Every once in a while they become unextinct. But uh, most geologists, just to cover their bases very well, refer to these kinds of mountains as dormant. Now, Ararat is a, is a massif. There are two parts to it. There is greater Ararat, and then over to the uh, northeast is lesser Ararat. Greater Ararat is, as I said, nearly 17,000 feet. Lesser Ararat is just under 13,000 feet above sea level. Now, the mountain is itself located in a great basaltic plateau. Some of you are familiar with the Columbia Plateau of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. That's a great basaltic flat, uh, plateau which is thought to have come from a fissure uh, in the ground such as Iceland. Iceland has come from fissure flows, a crack in the earth forms and the lava kind of flows out and, and runs across the landscape. You don't have a specific volcanic eruption per se like a mountain, but all along a, a, a rift in the ground. And so it was the Columbia Plateau and so it apparently was with the land of Ararat or Armenia. <coughs> this, this volcanic uh, basaltic plateau is about five to six thousand feet above sea level and located on the plateau are more than one volcano. In fact, there are many of them. Ararat simply happens to be the highest of them. There are others at 12, 13, 14, and even 15,000 feet above sea level in the general area around Mount Ararat. I noted last time to you that uh, there are records that have come to us from the Middle Ages which speak of considerable life on Mount Ararat. That Mount Ararat, even until the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries and even beyond, was forested. And that in the forests on the mountain of Ararat were hamlets and people lived up there. That's very striking compared to today because when you look at the mountain today, you discover there are very, very few trees on the mountain, just a pocket here or there. It's largely a desolate mountain and nobody lives on the mountain, and nobody even lives very near to the mountain. Today the mountain is visited by occasional uh, herders, Kurdish herders who live in the area, but other than that, generally the mountain is uh, off limits, and of course it's been off limits as far as the Turkish government is concerned because the north side has faced into the Soviet Union and they didn't want any historical trouble. If you know history, the Turks and the Russians have been anything but friendly. They have fought many wars through history. Long before the Soviet Union ever came into existence, the Turks and the Russians were deadly enemies. And so anything that, that ca might cause conflict along that border, there is uh, resistance to allowing people in. That's been one of the reasons that research on the mountain has been limited uh, in the last century or so. Mount Ararat. We today, if you were to see the mountain, you would note that the mountain does have snow on the top about the top, almost 2,000 feet is above the snow line, and there are glaciers on the mountain. According to one count, nine glaciers come down the different sides of the mountains. 
of the mountain. Uh, they don't go very far down the mountain. Obviously, the, uh, the climate is so dry that uh, there's not enough excess precipitation to, to push the glaciers far down the mountain. And of course, it's in one of those glaciers that many believe that the ark is trapped or has uh, been locked for these many centuries. And of course, the search goes on. There are those who say, no, it's over here, and there's been a study uh, on the plateau area down at the foot of the mountain, about 14 miles from the summit, where they argue that certain formation there and, and certain um, readings they have made with metal detectors indicate that there's this design on the ground which could indicate that that's where the keel of the ark rested and the ark is all gone except what's under the rock. Others argue, no, it's just a rock formation. So let's move on to the next passage. Noah and his family were probably a little bit tired of being in the ark. Most of us get cabin fever if we've been locked in the house all day, <laughs> let alone for weeks and months on end. I think Noah and his family were anxious to leave, to, to get out, to explore the land that had been so recently destroyed and now was in the process of rejuvenation. Now, I've mentioned this to you before, but it's very, very clear that this earth has been heavily impacted by catastrophes many times in history. And the uh, uniformitarianists who argued against this have come to the point today where they no longer can argue for straight uniformitarianism. They argue for punctuated equilibrium, which we've talked about before, which just means, yeah, there have been disasters, but they've been short-term, and, and then otherwise things go on like normal all the time. And then every once in a while you have a little disaster. It's the only way they've been able to explain the fossil finds that are out there, because they don't match uniformitarian understanding of how life would be left in the rock records. How do you explain masses of fish, for example, millions of fish all trapped in a major rock layer and all of them going like this, you know, indicating that they died in fright? You, you just can't, you know, a, a fish just rolls over and dies, you know, of old age, isn't going to look like that when it's found in the rocks, if it is. And of course, to, a, to, to get a fossil in the rocks requires very, very specific conditions which are ideal conditions which are rarely found. So a fossil is not easily formed, and yet the rocks are full of millions of them. Catastrophe is the only explanation, and many modern geologists are finally coming around to that, but of course still they don't want to get God involved in this, so they figure out some other method of trying to explain it. Back in the 14th century, there was a philosopher by the name of William of Ockham, and uh, he gave a little maxim which is known as Occam's razor, which is basically boiled down to the idea that the simplest answer is probably the most correct. The more convoluted and complex you make the explanation, the less likely it is to be true. And of course, the simplest explanation was there was a great massive flood, as the scripture recorded, and it destroyed the earth and locked in all these fossils in the, in the rock layers, and there you have it. More complex to argue that the continents rose and they fell, and they rose and they fell, sort of like on a, a billion-year escalator situation or, or elevator situation. 
and, and you try to explain the, the disconformities in the rock layers and, and then the layers that are put down, you know, it's, it really becomes complex. And every time you find that the rock layers are out of order, that you've got young rock layers buried under old ones, you've got to figure out, now, how in the world did that happen? Well, we got a, we've got a thrust fault here where some older stuff was shoved up over top of the younger. Well, there's a lot of ways to try to explain it if you're insistent upon a particular explanation. Science is where you go out and find what is and try to explain what is by the simplest means, not by going out with a preconceived idea and then trying to prove that preconceived idea no matter what the evidence is and kind of twist the evidence, ignore some evidence, change some evidence in order to bring about this explanation. Now many, of course, are very sold on the fact that radiometric dating is the answer and that uh, carbon-14 dating and uh, argon potassium rating, uh, dating and lead, uh, uranium dating, all of this kind of thing is, is absolute concrete proof and of course that's absurd. Uh, all kinds of things can happen to impact that and it's been done many times. Recently they have taken rocks out of the Grand Canyon lava flows, they sent them off to laboratories and these are rocks that have already by geologists been dated back hundreds of millions of years and uh, various laboratories give widely different dates. I mean dates that are not a plus or minus a percent or two, but are plus or minus hundreds of millions of years. I mean it's just not that accurate. It's just not that accurate. I was reading an account once where a man took the shell of a scallop which had just died and he sent some of the shell to various laboratories and he got dates as old as 3,000 years for that scallop. And the thing had just died. So, so the point is, you don't rest all of your eggs in the radiometric dating basket. And really that's the only basket there is for those who want to argue for long lengths of time and against catastrophism. So Noah and his family had been in the ark for these many, many months now. And they, of course, were interested in getting out. And this next passage, beginning with the sixth verse of chapter 8, just begins to discuss this interest in leaving the ark. Certainly they were anxious to do so, but Noah was very, very cautious, you'll notice. God told him when to enter the ark, and so Noah believed God would tell him when to leave the ark. He didn't just rush headlong into the ark and slam the door and sit there and wait for 17 months for, for the flood to come. He, he went on about his business till God said, now go into the ark. And so he figured on the same basis, why not wait till God says, leave the ark. However, though, certainly with a degree of curiosity and anticipation, he decided to check on the progress of the emergence of the new earth. Forty days after the mountain tops had appeared, off in the distance the mountain tops had begun to punctuate the horizon. The scripture tells us that he opened the window, probably moved apart the lattice work that was up there to make sure birds didn't fly out, whatever it was. Uh, he opened it in order to carry out this little episode with the, with the two birds. Approximately 264 days they had been on the ark now. 
It's a long time to be in a floating zoo, right? <laughs> I think they long for the wide open spaces. Now, Noah chose two birds. The first bird he chose was the raven. I think he chose the raven in order to have sort of a very crude approximation of how things were going. Not, I'm not saying by that that the raven is a crude bird in some way. But what I'm saying is this, and, and you'll notice on your outline, uh, 7a. Something of the characteristic here relative to the term raven. First of all, the term raven as used in Scripture is a generic term. It does not necessarily mean the bird which we today, under modern taxonomical terminology, call the raven. The biblical term seems to apply to a large black bird. Now, if you, any of you happen to be ornithologists and you're into bird watching, you know that there is a genus called Corvus. The genus Corvus includes many species of large black birds, most commonly the jackdaws, the crows, and the ravens. Now, there are many species of raven and many species of crow and many species of jackdaw. And as you go from jackdaw to raven, the birds increase in size. Jackdaw is sort of the size of a jay. In fact, the jays are distantly related, they, they believe. Then the crow and then the raven is a very, very large bird. I mean, some ravens from the tip of the beak to the end of the tail are two feet long. Most impressive raven I've ever seen was when I was up in Alaska. And as you know, uh, there's a lot of snow in Alaska. <laughs> and we're out here, and it was a January day, and it was frozen everywhere. And here hopping around in this stark white snow was a jet black raven, many of them actually. And boy, did they ever stand out. I mean, talk about the contrast of jet black with snow white. Amazing birds, these ravens. Now, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a bird which we call a raven today or a crow or what are we talking about? Well, we very possibly are talking about the ancestor to the crows and the ravens and all of these different creatures. We're going to talk about how that could be in a few minutes. Secondly, we note about the raven, the crow, that family of bird is their non-selective foragers. That is, if it's food, they'll eat it. And they don't care. How many times have you driven along the road and seen a crow, especially out after roadkill? <laughs> you know? And they tried to avoid being roadkill themselves, uh, but they're out there pecking at whatever's been smashed in the road. They don't care. Dead, alive, half dead, or whatever it is, they'll eat it. Since that is true, they become what Scripture calls an unclean bird. Now, in Leviticus chapter 11, the ravens, the animals, the, the birds classified as ravens are called unclean. And that's probably because they were carrion eaters. They'll eat dead stuff. It's most likely that they were also considered unclean in Noah's day because the Scripture says that of the unclean uh, birds and animals, only a single pair would be taken on the ark. Of the clean animals, three pairs and a spare. And so we have here this animal called the raven. Now, if we take these things into consideration and as we look at verse 7 of this particular passage, 
And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. It seems that this raven flew back and forth. Now, we don't, we don't know for sure whether it means back and forth from the ark or simply back and forth over the earth. The implication is it flew back and forth across the surface of the earth, but it did not ultimately return to the earth at the, I mean, to the ark at the end of the day because it found something desirable out there. For the raven or raven-like bird, that wouldn't be a problem. It could even land on a floating corpse, pardon the expression. But probably what it found were some fish that were in some ponds that had dried up and the fish were in uh, a state of disarray and decay, and uh, it began to feed out there. The raven never returned. Now think about it for a minute. There are, is on the ark, if this is an unclean bird, which apparently it was, how many ravens were on the ark? Two. One raven never came back. What about the other raven? <laughs> Did Noah say, well, if we're going to preserve these birds, I better send the other raven out too? He may have. Or did the two ravens sort of wait for each other, <clears throat> literally for another hundred days, until all the animals were released? I, I kind of feel Noah probably released the other raven so they could join its, quote, quote, mate out there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any black, large blackbirds today, right? Notice that the second bird which he sent out was a dove. He wanted a more accurate reading of the hospitality of the earth. The, the, the raven being a, a carrion eater, being non-picky about where it went, what it landed on, and what it ate, would be a crude indicator. But you send out a dove, now it's a very, very finicky animal. Doves don't like to land places that aren't nice and stable. They don't like to land on. You ever watch a, a dove land on, on, on your bird feeder if you have one? Or, or your uh, water, what do you call those things? A bird wash, bird bath, there we go. <clears throat> Sometimes they won't stop if that thing starts to rock. They'll flit right off again. Uh, they like things stable. And a dove is a vegetarian. Will not eat carrion. It eats seeds and it eats fruit. So obviously we've got a far more refined measuring device here. This animal will tell Noah whether things are really in pretty good shape out there or not yet. And so he sends out a dove. Now we don't know if it was a dove like we think of a dove or some similar creature. Pigeons and doves are this, basically the same creature. In fact, all domesticated pigeons are descended from the rock dove. And if you ever notice the way a pigeon functions and the way a pigeon walks, it's this way, same way the dove walks, you know, kind of like this <laughs> as they walk along. <clears throat> but whatever it was, the ancestor to modern pigeons and doves was sent out. It was sent out, and by implication, seven days after the raven. Because you'll notice it says in verse 10, so he waited yet another seven days. So that seems to indicate that it was seven days after he had sent out the raven and it had not returned that he sent out the dove for the first time. And the dove flew back and forth and back and forth, and it came back to Noah because there was no place 
that it was willing to land. It does not say that it was no, there was no place or does not imply there was no place for it possible to land, but no place that it wanted to land. And so it came back to Noah in the ark. And the scripture says he waited yet another seven days, and then he sent the dove out again, same dove. This time the dove, it says, came back in the evening, and in its beak was the great symbol of peace, the olive branch, the olive leaf. Why? Why did that dove bring the olive leaf back to Noah in the ark? Are doves in the habit of plucking off leaves and carrying them off someplace and giving them to somebody? Well, obviously it was God's doing. God had that dove pluck that leaf and take it back to Noah. Why? God, now we don't always believe this, but God really wants to encourage people. He wants to encourage us in our faith and in our walk with him. He, he's not a sink or swim type God. No. Ah, your mind now toss you out in the middle of the ocean and say, now swim. No. God is there to walk with us. God is there to encourage us. And God sent this olive leaf to Noah so that he and his family ark would say, wow, the earth is budding. Life is renewing. Now, an olive, an olive uh, tree is not like a piece of grass. I mean, not like a grass, you know. You've all seen what happens. As soon as it rains, the grass goes choop. And so do the weeds, a lot faster than your grass grow up. But in this case, obviously what we have is either a seedling or more likely a cutting from an olive tree has, has been implanted well enough so that it could sprout. Enough drainage, enough openness to the air, enough sun warming for that thing to actually sprout. And so... The dove brought back tangible evidence of new life. A week later, he sent out the dove again, and the dove didn't return. That indicates that the dove found out there places it was willing to land and food it was willing to eat. Fruit, seeds, whatever were out there, and it didn't want to come back. And so it stayed. About 285 days into this endurance uh, mission on the ark, the dove did not return, and Noah knew that conditions out there were improving very rapidly. Maybe it will not be very long before God will say, leave the ark. He didn't know it would be another three months. Genesis 8:13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living creature of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. 
So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Noah had learned something from the raven and the dove episodes. He had learned something of the condition of the earth out there, and certainly in his own mind, in the mind of his sons, they were thinking, hey, it ought to be okay. Why doesn't God let us get out of this here boat? But Noah was still waiting to hear the word of the Lord. Noah was a man of great faith and great patience. How many of us would be that patient and that faithful, put in his circumstances? How often do we rush ahead of the word of the Lord? How often do we plunge into something, yes, we throw up a prayer to God, oh Lord, guide me in this, and zoom, we go into it. How often do we rush into something in spite of the word of the Lord, rather than because of the word of the Lord? We often act as if the maxim, God helps those who help themselves, was biblical, which it is not. I've heard Christians quote that. Well, you know what the Lord says, God helps those who help themselves. Chapter and verse, please. <laughs> you won't find that in the Scripture, and you won't even find that principle in the Scripture. That's a human principle. That's humanistic. It's not a teaching of God. What does the Bible say about this idea? Well, I, I've given you a couple of verses there in Isaiah, <clears throat> a couple of passages. Let's look at Isaiah 40, verse 31 first. And, and these are very familiar passages to us all. Isaiah 40, 31. And it says, Yet those who rush ahead into whatever they're going to do will gain new strength. Huh. No, it doesn't, does it? It says, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Lenin told us that religion, and of course his main emphasis was upon Christianity, was the crutch of the people, the, the opium of the people. That, that, you know, people needed religion to opiate their mind because they can't handle life, or they needed a crutch called the church or the Bible or God to lean on because they're too helpless to get along in this life without it. <coughs> Anybody is a fool who thinks they can handle life on their own. Because you cannot and I cannot. As the saying is sometimes said, we're all one heartbeat from eternity. And you and I do not control when that last heartbeat will happen. That is, unless, of course, we purposely set about to end our lives. But if our desire is to live as long as possible, we do not necessarily, you know, control when that last heartbeat will take place. Um, someone who thinks he's the captain of his own ship hasn't read many of the stories of captains of ships. The man who captained the Titanic said, I am captaining a ship that not even God can sink. Well, so much for that idea. Uh, the person is wise who realizes that we need someone far greater than we 
to live successfully in this life. And do you know what evidence we have today that people are turning to this more and more? Just look at the growth of, of, of new age ideas and people who go sit in their little uh, office and go through a mantra hoping that somehow today they'll have a more successful business. This is spreading in modern America, technologically modern America. Why? Because inside of us is ultimately the realization that we can't handle it. Why do people who seem to be so successful, like Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe and other people like that, kill themselves? I mean, if, if life is nothing but fame and fortune and, and, quote, happiness, why in the world do they do that? Because it's not. Scripture teaches us that he who gains the whole world but loses his soul is hopeless. There's, I mean, the rich die like everybody else. You know the little bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? Wins what? Wins a coffin. Yeah. Solomon, who had all that wealth, was really kind of reticent about leaving it to his successors. I mean, you go and you earn all this fortune, and what do you do? You leave it to some nitwit kids. I like the little sticker in the back of some uh, people's RVs. <laughs> We're spending our kids' inheritance, yeah. <laughs> we must be patient and not run ahead the Lord because we are not able to determine the right thing to do. Ever not notice that the stock market sometimes is really a whole lot like roulette or some other game? You really don't know whether it's going to go up or down. Uh, and people throw all of their money into this and it goes down the tubes and so they switch it to this and it goes down the tubes. You just don't know. We must learn to depend on the strength of the Lord. Another passage in Isaiah which emphasizes this point, Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 6. Strong admonition here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and God will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is not up there sitting like a judge just waiting for us to do something wrong so he can slap us down. God is a God of mercy and pardon. He wants to forgive, and he's just longing for us to do what it takes, which is to confess our sin and to say, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness and I need your healing and I need your wholeness. That's what he wants to do for us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If that wasn't true, he wouldn't be God. If you and I could understand God and fully grasp Him, we'd be God too. One of the clear teachings of Scripture is that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, and you and I know we're far from that. When we often can't even think what our mate's thinking, and we've been living with them for all these years, let alone what God is thinking or what 
its thinking is, is in the world today, in many people's minds. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. This is figurative speaking, obviously, and everybody should understand that. Indicating the joy of the Lord in the earth. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. I will be a memorial, it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will, be, will not be cut off. This doesn't mean that you and I will never have problems in our life, in our lives. But it means that as we go through the trials and tribulations of life, as we go through the great storm as Noah did, there is an ark, the ark of safety in the Lord. And the fact that no matter what comes our way, we can say as Job did, Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That's when we have arrived at the place of strong, solid, biblical faith, where we're not up and down all the time like, uh, like teenage love, where, where our love is deep and mature and we realize that God isn't going to step in every moment and work some kind of a miracle. He's not going to pick us up out of every little problem, but he promises to go with us through it all and to be by our side, and to be our strength, our shield, our helper. And of course, we, we, we say the psalm, don't we? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We know God is with us even there. And many testify to that, even though often that psalm is the one that's read at, the, at, at a funeral. It, it applies to the living, too, because many of us have been through the valley of the shadow. What does the Bible really say? You know, that little maxim, God helps those who help themselves, becomes biblical if you change only one word. God helps those who help others. Then it is a biblical maxim. Just a point of illustration. I don't think I have these on there, but let me just read a couple of verses uh, from the New Testament to illustrate this. Some of you are familiar with the little book of Titus. Let me read a couple of verses from Titus that sort of emphasize this point. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Let Verse 14. Let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they may not be unfruitful. We are not here to, con to, to practice or to do good deeds in order to gain God's approval. Our approval comes through our submission to Him our confession of our need of salvation and our prayer of lordship in his, in his lordship in our lives. That is all that it takes.
but good deeds follow as proof of the reality of that commitment. It's the purpose of our ongoing existence here, to do good deeds to meet pressing needs. What are some of those pressing needs? Well, let me just read a verse. This is very familiar to you from James. James 1.27, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's part of meeting pressing needs, going to those in need, financial, physical, whatever their need is, and helping them. That's an expression of God's love because that's what Jesus did when he walked here on this planet. He helped those who came to him with needs. And it says, implies that he healed thousands. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, and met their needs. God helps those who help others. That's biblical. God helps those who help themselves. That's a human idea. And Noah fairly well knew that. Noah's first serious move towards leaving the ark didn't come until the day after his 601st birthday, a birthday none of us will ever see on this planet, guaranteed. A birthday most of us wouldn't want to see on this planet, the way it's going. After living on the ark, for approximately 315 days. Noah goes up and he removes a portion of the roof so they can go up now and walk around on the roof and really get a good view. Get some sunshine, get a little tan, and see what's going on in the world. Can you imagine a world in which you're looking out and the only living thing you would see outside the ark would be vegetation? And to know there are no bugs on the ground. Mm -hmm. Nothing out there yet except plants. Of course, you're living with the bugs. <laughs> Some of us today would have, would have loved to have given Noah a can of raid or something and <laughs> might have made life a little more tolerable today. That's kind of interesting, though. Recent studies have been done about the possibility of human consumption of insects because they multiply so rapidly that they would provide a whole lot more protein than we get from, <laughs> sorry, but <laughs> these are serious studies done by universities. I'm not talking about, you know, studying some Hottentot somewhere. Uh, because the protein content is very high. And of course, it would hit turnabout's fair play, right? As far as Noah and his family could see, the earth was dry. As far down the mountain, we don't know how far up the mountain they actually landed. We don't know, but what, uh, as Mort was saying after class last time, that uh, Ararat probably did some erupting time subsequent to the time the ark landed, and the greater heights may have been built up at, at a later time, or the whole area may have been uplifted, even as after the ark landed. We don't know. It's very unlikely that the ark landed very on the tippy top, you know, of, of the mountain, especially at 17,000 feet. At first, that wouldn't be too bad because the water would be high, so the atmosphere would still be high, but as the water kept going lower and lower, the air would get cooler and cooler and thinner and thinner. 
Noah was a man of faith. And even though he looked out and it looked like the world was ready, he said, no, we are not yet leaving the ark because we haven't heard from the Lord. And until we hear from the Lord, we're not leaving this ark. Do you imagine, can you put yourself in Noah's place and imagine what his wife, his three sons, and their wives were saying to Noah? Come on, Noah. Dad, we've been on this boat for these 300 and more days. Let's get off. Maybe the Lord's not going to tell us when to get off. Maybe he wants us to use our common sense. God helps those who help, our, help themselves. Let's just get off the boat. It's obvious that it's okay out there. Do you suppose there was any nagging like that? Why not? Let's be human. Let's be realistic about the whole thing. They all wanted to get on with their lives. They all wanted to get out to the confines of the ark. After all, it was blooming down there. It was probably taking on an aura of beauty. But Noah knew that God's timing was perfect. And he insisted that they wait to hear from the Lord. He had told them when to enter the ark, and they were not going to leave until God told them when to leave the ark. Why? Why did God do that? Is God into trying our patience? Does he ever do that? Does God ever test our faith? I think so. And that may have been a reason. God let them stay there, do a little testing. I don't think that was the main reason. I think the main reason was the vegetation was yet not sufficient to support all the animal life in the ark. And on top of that, probably a lot of it was still waterlogged. It was take a little more time for evaporation to occur and for percolation to take place so that the swampy nature, particularly of many of the lowlands and valleys, would be removed and the verdant grassy plains would be formed. And so I think God said, they're staying here until it's all ready. Remember Genesis chapter 1? When did God create Adam and Eve? After he had perfected the painting. After he had put the sun and the moon and stars in place, and obviously the atmosphere and the water uh, firmaments, and put the animals and the flowers, and then he put Adam in the perfect world. He didn't say, I'm going to create this guy Adam and I'm going to stick him up here and let him watch all this happen. No, he did it all and then he put Adam in it. And so, sort of a repeat here. I'm reestablishing this world and then Noah and his family will go out into the world that is ready for them.